listeners to Fruit Loops episode four. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I have to warn you, trigger warning, this episode deals with familicide and the murder of young children. So the content, discussions, and opinions discussed may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Fruit Loops, a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color that we don't know much about because, well, the news is racist. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's mm-hmm. Wendy. I'm Beth. Mm-hmm. We're not journalists, investigators, nope. or psychologists. Nope. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Yes, I'm extremely unqualified. Except, <laughs> ex- except very, that, very unqualified. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We're just here to tell a story. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, so uh, how has your week been, Beth? It's been a little busy, been mm. a little crazy, mm-hmm. so trying to get everything done. Yes. Uh, but good, good. It's good to keep busy. Yeah. Busy people get stuff done. Am I right? <laughs> 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 um, so first, are you sipping on anything special today? Not special. I'm actually drinking the Kirkland Malbec 2015. Oh, my God. Uh, I am drinking Kirkland Chardonnay. <laughs> <laughs> Go Kirkland! Woo, Kirkland! <laughs> Do you know that show Baskets um, with I've, Zach Galifianakis? I know about it, but I haven't watched it. Okay, so I haven't either, but I've heard a lot of commentary about it. And apparently, like in his in his mom's home, it's it's Kirkland everything. But they never. Oh, so like Kirkland that's like is my house. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. They're just like us. So it's like Kirkland is like a character on the show without even really being <laughs> being having okay, uh, right. any lines right um so any serial killer news uh yeah so this is not really a serial killer per se he was more like a spree killer um this happened recently in phoenix uh guy um killed over the course of five days he killed six people around uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. So it was Phoenix and Scottsdale and Fountain Hills, I believe. Um, uh, The victims included a forensic psychiatrist named Stephen Pitt. Um, He was actually involved in several high-profile cases, including the John Benet Ramsey case and the Spaceline Killer case. Whoa. Yeah. So forensic psychiatrists help determine whether a suspect's mental health contributed to a crime, and they testify in trials. Um, So uh, Stephen Pitt uh, was this guy's name, and he was found Mm -hmm. shot dead in Phoenix after witnesses heard a loud argument and gunshots. And then uh, the next day, Two other victims were found, uh, 48-year-old Valeria Sharp and 49-year-old Laura Anderson. They were two paralegals at a Scottsdale law firm, and they were killed at their office um, the next afternoon. Then a fourth victim, 72-year-old Marshall Levine, was found, uh, I think, the following day uh, in his office at a mental health counseling facility. And according to what I read, he was killed in a case of mistaken identity. A uh, son of a bitch. Yeah, I know. So the guy who killed these people 
Um, his name was Dwight Lamont Jones. Um, and he was upset because he had gone through a divorce like eight years prior. Mm -hmm. Um, and he was still bitter about this divorce and he spent hours online griping about his ex-wife and the family court system, I guess, YouTube videos. And, um, he spoke in a series of YouTube videos about the judge, the counselors, and uh, the the forensic psychiatrist, Stephen Pitt. Uh, he actually called him a scumbag in one of his videos. Oh. Yeah. Whoa. So uh, really interesting the way that they found him. Um, uh, the suspect's ex-wife, her name was is Connie Jones, uh, said Dr. that her... her Jones. Huh? <laughs> Isn't she a doctor? Yes, she is. Do- Dr. Dr. Connie, Connie Jones. Jones. A radiologist. Yeah, she is a doctor. And uh, her current husband is a retired police detective. And mm. he actually made the connection between her divorce and the crime scene. So the first the crime scene with uh, Do- uh, Stephen Pitt and mm. the uh, paralegals. And he called the police and told them what he thought. He thought it was this guy. And um, because the, the paralegals worked for the law firm that represented uh, Connie Jones in her divorce. Okay. And Stephen Pitt testified in her uh, case. Mm-hmm. So, And then there were two other victims found shot dead. Uh, they were killed a couple days later in Fountain Hills. Uh, 70-year-old Mary Simmons and 72-year-old Brian Thomas. And they were just friends or casual acquaintances of uh, Dwight Jones. Mm -hmm. So not really sure why he killed them um, because they were just casual acquaintances, but uh, he did. Mm-hmm. And then they found him in a hotel and he killed himself. It was like an extended stay hotel that he was living at. Oh, the, so the police never got him. No, because he killed himself. And so we'll never know. What, no, he will never hear uh, what he has to say. But uh, I guess there's plenty of YouTube videos. Um, oh. I didn't I didn't <laughs> look for them. I, I Like I said before, I hate listening to these guys but there (laughs) there there was a recent dateline episode about this case i believe it was last it aired last weekend so i watched it oh did you so you know all about it yeah 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 i I was um because they interviewed connie and i was more interested in what she she had to say yeah yeah so she described it as living with this guy was a nightmare and 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 the afterwards the even after the divorce was even more of a nightmare yeah they described him as her personal terrorist yeah yeah so that's my news well um so uh i will tell you about (laughs) a case uh on on june 10th Phoenix police officers responded to the area of 35th Avenue and Dunlap Road for a missing person report. Family members told officers that 52-year-old Gustavo Gonzalez left left to sell his truck and never came home. Then on June 26th, that's about 
two weeks or so later, yeah. police received information about a truck that matched the one belonging to Gonzalez in the area of 29th Avenue and Camelback Road. Officers were able to confirm the truck was Gonzalez's. When police went there, they recognized a vehicle that matched an SUV that followed the victim's truck on June 10th, caught on a neighbor's surveillance video. Police stopped the black SUV as it left the area. The driver of the SUV was 23-year-old Oliver Laris, and it was uh, it was shown that he had a he had contact with Gonzalez. Eventually, told officers he bought the truck from Gonzalez for five thousand dollars. Okay, okay, I'm following along. And then dropped him off near his house and doesn't know what happened to him. He posted an ad for the truck on Facebook on June 26th. That's the same day, y'all. Yep. He was trying to sell the truck for five hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. He says that he saw that it was listed as stolen, though some app, and that's why he was trying to sell it for for such a low for such a low price. So, so he said it was stolen, um, or he said that it was listed as stolen. I'm reading this. It was it th- through an app that he had. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's why he was trying to sell it for such a low price. Police believe Gustavo Gonzalez was a victim of homicide, but have not found his body. But Oliver Laris has been arrested for homicide. This uh, case reminds me of a Canadian case, uh, the murder of Tim Bosma. I don't know if you've heard of that one. Mm-mm. Nope. Uh, the In that case, they, they also... Uh, pretended like they wanted to uh, test drive somebody's truck, uh, took the guy for a test drive, and then killed him. Are you fucking serious? Yeah, and they stole it. This is very terrifying, because in the last... So our car was stolen in March, yada, yada, yada. And in this whole... What are we in? July now? Past four months, we've been test driving so many cars in contact with so many people on Facebook and Craigslist and OfferUp. And... uh, I never considered the possibility of getting that they murdered. might kill you. <laughs> they yeah, might kill us. yeah. Jesus fucking yeah. Christ. So, okay. um, yeah, this it did happen, and in that case as well, that's a really fascinating case. But it's a bunch of white people, so <laughs> so we won't be talking about it because they'll but get if, enough. But if you're interested, uh, there's a podcast called Canadian True Crime, and she does a really good episode on that case. Okay, and then um, I guess one other thing we should ask is is that uh, Phoenix Police are asking anyone that might have additional information to call Silent Witness, and that is 480-WITNESS. So, um, any uh, shout-outs or recommendations for... um, Why don't you give yours? Oh, okay. Okay, so here's where we here's the part of our show where we give shout outs to any underrepresented true crime podcasts, TV shows, books, or people. And um, I am a fan. <laughs> well, we're both true crime fans, but yeah. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> Once Upon a Crime, love the I show. Love that podcast. I love it. Um, the host, uh, I should know her name, and I do not. I am sorry. Esther. Her first name's Esther. Okay. And um, her voice is like butter. And um, she uh, did a recent episode. It's episode number 91. And it was about the Cecil Hotel. And um, anyway, she uh, 
talked about all the stuff, the crazy stuff that happened in that hotel, but she also highlighted uh, Richard Ramirez. He is the Night Stalker, and true crimers should be familiar with him. Um, but uh, he is a Latinx serial killer and serial rapist. And uh, she dove real deep, and I have not been able to sleep very well since I heard that episode. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. Pretty creepy. Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. my so gosh. So can I ask you something? Yes. What does Latinx mean? Oh, yes. Oh, well, this is a podcast about people of color. Yeah, so, so please uh, educate so, me. So um, uh, th- in the past, we referred to Latino people as Latino for male uh, Latino for general population and Latina for um, female. Right. But now that we've um, evolved as a, a civilization and um, there's trans people that are included in, in, in that. So rather than um, having to say Latino, Latina, slash, slash this and Figure that. Figure it all Latin, out. Yeah. 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 Latinx is just a way, a, a respectful Including way to include yeah. everybody. Gotcha. Yes. Good to know. I did not know that. Hey, I have, I'm, I'm out I here to help. I something new. Yes, yeah. we, yes, that's what this podcast is all about. All about Amen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what's yours? So mine is not actually an underrepresented show. <laughs> it's kind of popular, but it's called Wild Wild Country, and it's a TV series on Netflix. Yes. It's about a commune that was located in Oregon. And the leader, his name was Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, or just Bhagwan, mm. um, which is Hindi for God. Oh. He was from India, and his right-hand woman, Ma Anand Sheila, or just Sheila, started the c- commune in Oregon, and it was called Raj Rajneesh Puram. <laughs> That's <laughs> Good, a mouthful. Yes, you, you did it. You did it. <laughs> uh, there was a lot of controversy over the commune, whether or not it was a cult, which was really big at the time because there was a lot of worry over cults after the Jonestown massacre. Mm-hmm. Uh, they fought with the local townspeople who didn't want them there. And then there were some crimes. <laughs> I am just one word. Salmonella. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 That's it. Yeah. (laughs) You'll see. You'll see. (laughs) So uh, you get to see both sides of the story uh, from the townspeople and from the people in the commune. And it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, I was telling my mom about the show this morning. I was I was like practically like shouting, "You have to watch this!" It's it's really hard to describe because when uh, people were urging me to watch it, I was like, "Eh, cults, communes, blah," you know. And then <laughs> and then I watched it, and I I think I I binged it in like two days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> talking about today so today we're talking about clementine barnabet uh who has been called the first female african-american serial killer uh the case has also been referred to as the mulatto axe murders all of the victims were well this is uh 
not actually, I don't know this for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Many of the victims were mulattoes or members of families with mixed race children. Uh, Mulatto is an antiquated term. It stems from the word mule and refers to people of mixed race. So it's not actually a nice term, but it was the word that they used back then. Mm -hmm. And the killer was presumed by blacks and the police alike to be selecting victims on the basis of their mixed or tainted blood. Yes. So this case is also often referred to as the voodoo murders uh, because of an alleged religious motive. But we'll get into that part later. And once again, the murders received little newspaper coverage. And as the years have gone by, few people remember the case. Yeah, researching this case was super difficult. I'll say. Yes, many articles had different dates and years and different spellings of names. I actually saw Clementine spelled Clementine with an I and Clementine with an E. Yeah. I don't know which is correct, but I saw Clementine uh, more often, so that's the spelling that I used. Mm-hmm. Uh, the actual story's kind of convoluted, and it was difficult to separate the wheat from the chaff. Ooh. But uh, what does the best that mean? <laughs> The the good stuff from the bad stuff. Oh. <laughs> it's a biblical term. Did oh. <laughs> Come on, I'm, get on get on I'm, your Bible, woman. I've never heard that before. You never did? Okay, yeah. well, there you go. Yeah. Here's some white, anyway. white people speak. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. See, I'm learning stuff. We're every all day. Every yeah. day. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> so uh, we it was hard to separate the good stuff from the bad stuff, but <laughs> we did the best we could to get the correct information. We did. So, but if you have any um, information, yeah, uh, or, about this case, yeah, corrections yeah. or anything, let yeah. us know. At us, yeah, just at us at our Facebook group, our Twitter page, or Instagram page. Yep. It's um, or email us. Yeah, or email at us at a uh, Fruit Loops Pod at gmail dot com. Yeah. Okay. So your favorite part now, stats. Ooh, I love the stats, y'all. I just, I just, <laughs> I am just like when I see a number next to people that they killed, I'm like, oh, wow. And and okay, uh, besides on top of the wow, like wow, how come I never heard about this before? So yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, Miss Barnabet. Um, the newspapers attributed up to 35 killings to Clementine. That's what, she, that's also what she said she was responsible for. Um, and, oh, just kidding. No, the newspapers attributed <laughs> her to 35, 35 killings. And then, um, either by her hand or her instruction. And she personally claimed that she herself murdered 17 of these just these a people. mere a mere yeah, 17 no, no, biggie. no biggie i'm trying to think of 17 things that i've done like in my life <laughs> and i can't that's uh, a lot of that's yeah, a lot of, that's to a lot do of anything <laughs> yeah laundry for sure <laughs> yeah <laughs> um okay so uh the crimes began in 1909 and ended in 1912 so all right so uh we wanted to talk about her early life um, we didn't have a lot of information. All we know is that she was born around 1894 in St. Martinville, Louisiana, and moved to Lafayette, Louisiana in 1909. Lafayette? Sorry. Lafayette. Ha- Hamilton fans here. Sorry. Lafayette. <laughs> Lafayette. <laughs> Lafayette. 
one of my favorites. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. Sorry. Sorry. Standing over anyway. here for Hamilton. <laughs> okay. Back to the story. Sorry. Okay. Uh, <laughs> she was born into a two-parent household, uh, lived with her mother and father, Nina Porter, and Raymond Barnabet. Raymond Barnabet was reported to be abusive to his family and very aggressive. And she had one brother, uh, I'm really not sure how to pronounce this, but I'm going to take a stab at it, Zephyrin Barnabet. That's how I was reading it in my head. So it okay. sounds, yeah, that sounds, sounds right. right. <laughs> um, so let's get into uh, her criminal history prior to. Well, goose egg there, because we know of no prior criminal history. Some of her neighbors said that um, she ran the streets and her family was described as filthy, shifty, and degenerate. Um, wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. And I was wondering what these... I'm, I'm assuming she lived in a, in a black community. Yeah, it was, a, it was a black community, so these were black people say okay. this it okay. wasn't i mean if it was white people i'd be like yeah whatever but yeah that's what i that's that's what i wasn't sure about because i was like who are these neighbors is yeah, it who are these yeah. neighbors is it is it marianne up the street or is it or is it is it lucretia you know what i mean yeah yeah so, okay i think it was lucretia okay <laughs> So uh, we're going to get into the timeline. Uh, Murders began occurring through a cluster of towns along the Southern Pacific Railroad line in Louisiana and Texas. Uh, The first one was on November 11th, 1909 uh, in Rain, Louisiana. Edna, okay, here's another name, Edna Opelousas, Opelousas, Edna Opelousas, and her three children, ranging in age from four to nine, were murdered. At 1 a.m., neighbors were awakened by the screams of the children. Uh, Several people ran to the house and found Edna dead, her head split open with an axe. Her children had also been attacked about the head with the axe, but were still alive, Uh, The bloodied axe was left at the crime scene. Uh, The children were given medical care, but all three eventually died of their wounds. That's a sad one. Um, And the sadness continues. It does. On January 31st in 1911 in Crowley, Louisiana, a small town near the Texas border at... 605 Western Avenue. Ooh, we got their address? Yeah. <laughs> One address. <laughs> Walter Byers and his wife and six-year-old son went to bed as usual. Early the next afternoon, a little girl went to their home on an errand. She found the doors locked and noticed a bad smell. And I was kind of surprised. I didn't know that like dead bodies stunk that fast. But Yeah, that's what was reported in the paper. I, I yeah. got this one from a newspaper, so... I don't know. Um, it was in Louisiana, so I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. Neighbors then called police and alerted them to the fact that something terrible may have happened. When a police officer arrived at the scene, he found the small family lying in bed with their skulls split open. The bed was drenched in blood and there were bloody foot tracks on the floor. A wash bowl with bloody water in it, presumably where the murderer had washed their hands, was left on the washstand. 
Underneath the washstand was a basin half filled with blood. The doors to the house were locked, indicating that the killer had probably come in through a window. There was no evidence of a struggle, indicating that the family had been killed in their sleep. At the head of the bed stood a bloodied axe. <laughs> From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. Introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6000 cash, give us each 3000 we give you this. Uh-huh. You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. So, and then, uh, that was in January. About a month later, in February 1911, in Lafayette, Louisiana. Little more than four weeks later. It's right in there. <laughs> <laughs> she was busy. She was busy that winter, huh? Yeah. Uh, the murderer struck again, killing four members of the Andrus family. Alexandre Andrus, uh, his wife, Mimi, and their children, Joaquim and Agnes. Joaquim was three and Agnes was 11 months old. Mm. Yeah, they had been murdered by Axe inside the cabin. The bodies of Alexandre and Mimi had been placed by the bedside, propped on their knees with the woman's arm draped over her husband's shoulders as if in prayer. The baby and the toddler were laid in front of them on the bed. A Dr. Clark reported that that the bodies were still warm when they were found, and they placed the time of death around midnight. It was believed that the killer had entered the home through the kitchen door. 
Uh, police began to suspect that their crimes were similar uh, and they may have been the work of the same terrible monster. Mm. That was a quote from one of the articles. Ah, so just to just to recap, so this started in November 1909. There's a two year gap yeah. between 1909 to 1911, and yep. that's when shit gets real. Yep. Uh, so on March 1911 in San Antonio, Texas, Alfred Lewis and his uh, wife Elizabeth Lizzie Cassaway were murdered in a similar fashion. I shouldn't have said that they're married because I don't really know. Um, But they uh, were a family and they had three little children. Lewis was a black man and his wife, a white woman. Oh, they were married. They had to go to Mexico to get married. Yeah, yeah. There you go. (laughs) There we go. Uh, Since it was against the law in Texas and most of the South and uh, they had been married for 20 years. I just think that that's so wonderful. Hashtag marriage equality. Um, Lewis was employed at the Grant School for Black Children in San Antonio. Uh, The bodies of Cassaway, his wife, and three children were found in their home on Olive Street after Louis failed to come into work that day, and a friend stopped by to check in on him and discovered the crime scene and called police. And in the front room of their small house, Lewis was found lying on a daybed with his daughter Louise, who was six years old. Mm. Their heads had been crushed by the blunt side of an axe. And oddly, the killer had covered Lewis's face with a piece of cloth. In the next room, officers found Lizzie lying dead in bed with the bodies of the other two children. A baby boy, six months old, was clutched in his mother's arms, his skull crushed by the axe. Yeah, these kids. It's hard. Uh, The Cassaway's three-year-old daughter, Josie, was lying dead across her mother's legs. Uh, The police surmised that she had awakened during the murders and had tried to escape. She was struck down before she could climb down from the bed. Lizzie was the most badly disfigured of all of the victims. She had been struck repeatedly with the blunt side of the axe, spraying blood all over the walls of the bedroom. Uh, yeah, it's just it's just hard to um, imagine because um, uh, there's a lot of details here about yeah. <laughs> what happened to the kids yeah. and so I, babies. I, yeah, yeah, it's it's really hard to sort of. Um, burn that image out of your brain. Yeah. But we have a job to do, and that is to tell the story, right? Yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, in some articles, this case was linked to other murders, and in some, it's not. Uh, but the similarities are indeed striking. According to some reports, all of the families were families of mixed race, and law officers surmised that the killer or killers, I strongly believe it was killers, yeah. used the rail lines to enter a community and leave undetected. In October of 1911, uh, most authorities did consider the possibility of a white killer, uh, but soon ruled that out due to the location of many of the crimes. It was in black neighborhoods. So uh, a white man would probably have been noticed and remembered. Yeah. If I see, okay, so I live in, I kind of live in the hood. (laughs) And whenever I see a white person in my neighborhood, I assume they are lost. They are auditing somebody or (laughs) they're the HOA inspector. (laughs) So you you notice them. We do notice them. Yeah. (laughs) 
So police began to focus their investigation on Clementine's father, Raymond Barnabet, who was reportedly a local petty criminal and sharecropper from Lafayette. Raymond Lafayette, uh, sorry, I Lafayette, can't help myself. Lafayette, <laughs> Lafayette, Lafayette, Lafayette. <laughs> okay, okay, this back is a to the story. Story, sorry. Raymond was arrested based on the suspicions of his mistress. After a fight, she'd complained about him to a friend and suggested a possible connection to the murders. Raymond Barnabet went to trial. Raymond's children, Zephyrin and Clementine Barnabet, testified against their father. And the teenage Clementine told a graphic story of her father returning home one night with blood on his clothes as he threatened the family. Zephyrin confirmed the story, adding that their father bragged that he killed the whole damn ant. The whole. This is okay. So I'm picturing him saying this in a Samuel L. Jackson voice. So I killed the whole damn Andrews family. Both children said they feared for their life uh, if their father was free. He was found guilty of the Andrews murders on October 24th. Uh, 1911. His attorneys. Oh, I wrote 2011. Man, that took a long time. No, I don't worry. I got you, sis. His attorneys appealed, however, and he was granted a new trial. So, November 26, 1911, Lafayette, Raymond was in jail waiting for a new trial. Another murder took place. Uh, Norbert Randall, his wife and three children, all under the age of nine, and a nephew had been killed with the blunt side of an axe, shattering their skulls. Their bodies were discovered by the family's 10-year-old daughter who spent the night at her uncle's house. Mm. She found the kitchen door open, and when she went inside, she saw her parents and the children in bed murdered. She gave the alarm, and officers went to the scene of the murder to investigate. The man and wife and little baby girl were found in one bed, and the three boys in another, and all had been struck in the head. It was raining, unfortunately, which removed any outside trace of the criminal. The axe that had been used to kill the family was found in the house, washed off. The Lafayette Parish Sheriff, Louis Lacoste, it was, uh, it was clear to him that a killer was still on the loose. Way to go. Uh, he was already <laughs> suspicious of... Wait, what? Yeah. Wait a, yeah. There's a killer on the loose? Oh my gosh. What's your IQ? <laughs> he was already suspicious of Raymond Barnabet's children, Clementine and Zephyrin. His suspicions, uh, or his suspicions stemmed in part from the fact that they had bad reputations around town. And uh, during Raymond's trial, their neighbors described them as filthy, shifty, and degenerate. And earlier, when police had come to the Barnabet residence to arrest Raymond, blood had been discovered on Clementine's clothes. And she testified during her father's trial that he had uh, wiped the blood there, but the sheriff wasn't so sure. So um, one thing I am kind of curious about that, I don't know if it's safe to assume, but I'm assuming that the police force is, is all is all white. I, I um, would assume so. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I have just from like I, I followed the Freddie Gray 
case. And so I got really into the Maryland police department. And, and, and at some point after they ended like slavery, they did allow black people on the police force, but they didn't didn't allow them. They didn't allow them to carry guns. So I, I'm kind of curious about the makeup because Louisiana is, was at the time and maybe it still is like the blackest there, there was the the biggest population of of free black people at the time oh wow i, didn't I read know that. somewhere so yeah anyway i was just curious about the police yeah the police i don't make i don't know for sure i was assuming that they were all white but it's possible that some of them were black yeah just i was just wondering it's anyway. possible yeah okay so on uh, november 27th 1911 it was the day after the randall murders uh, deputies arrested Clementine and searched the family's home. The newspaper, the Daily Picayune, reported <laughs> on that name. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the Daily Picayune. <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm assuming that's how you pronounce it. It uh, is okay. I lived Picayune. in New Orleans for a month. <laughs> oh, and that's it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, they reported on uh, November 28th, uh, 1911, that there was a complete suit of women's clothes in Clementine's room, saturated with blood and covered with human brains. Also, a latch on their door was covered in blood. Zephyrin uh, was able to provide an alibi for the night of the murders, but Clementine had none, so she was taken to jail. Clementine alleged that she attended a house of worship uh, called the Sacrifice Church with the Randalls. After being questioned by police, uh, she stated that she killed the family because Norbert Randall uh, refused to follow church orders. After being subjected to what the newspapers called the third degree, uh, she also confessed to murders of the Andrus family back in February, the one that her father had been convicted for. Mm-hmm. Uh, she claimed that she had committed those murder- murders with the help of her father. She was arrested and held in custody through the spring of 1912. But the murders didn't stop. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. (laughs) So, and then on uh, January 20th, 1912, in Lake Charles, Louisiana, Felix Broussard, his wife, and their three children were murdered in Lake Charles, a town further out along the line through Rain and Crowley. This was kind of a callback to the Andrus murders for its elaborate staging. If you remember the Andrus murders, uh, that's the one where they posed the mother and father. Oh, like they were praying. Like they were praying, yeah. Over the baby. So the Broussards were found laid out across the sheets, each skull crushed by the blunt end of the axe. Uh, The weapon itself was left under the bed. So... The scene was strangely bloodless, as the victim's blood had been collected in a bucket. What the fuck? (laughs) Their hands were splayed open, and each finger had been separated and held apart with wooden pins and rolled up, uh, and rolled up pieces of paper. So it it was like a, a a high five, but there was like pieces of paper stuck in between to hold in between the, their the fingers to hold the hands the hold the fingers out it was so like a jazz hand but yeah less, it was like jazz less hands. fabulous yes way, less, way fabulous. less fabulous yes so <laughs> uh, 
written on the wall was a biblical passage from Psalm 9, which is not the coolest psalm. I don't know why they used it. But <laughs> when he maketh the inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. The message was signed Human 5. The number in the signature led police to think a band of murderers was at work. And that's what I think, too. And it also lent the group a nickname picked up by the press, the Human Five Gang. Now, if I had a gang. The Human Five would not be my choice. That's not my first choice. It doesn't even sound. That doesn't sound scary or cool. or It it sounds like a, a band or you know yeah something. like the maroon five maroon five or the jackson five <laughs> this love has <laughs> taken its toe okay <laughs> sorry we're having some we're having too much fun and this is a sad show i, I think we have to <laughs> okay so anyway yeah the human five gang the human five gang yeah so the newspaper seized on the idea that the murders were connected to a voodoo ritual. Um, one of the first to take that angle, the El Paso Gazette, published a story on the Broussard murders titled Voodoo's Horrors Break Out Again. The story suggested the crimes were connected to human sacrifice, which, you know, that they're just pulling this out of their ass. They, yeah, they really have no <clears> idea. <throat> and we'll get into we'll get into Yeah, we'll get into that. Yeah. Uh, so they they alleged that it was a human sacrifice that took place as part of a voodoo ritual and emphasized the idea of the number five as somehow having ritualistic relevance. They said, uh, this is a quote, Two months ago, six members of the Wexford family perished at the hands of the fanatics, but one was an infant that had been born only the day before the tragedy, and in all probability had not been taken into consideration when the plans for the human sacrifice were consummated. The reporter for the paper also wrote... Now comes the Broussard tragedy with its five victims, thus completing a series of sacrifices of five separate families, each evidently intended to have five victims. And these numbers were not even accurate. Okay, so El Paso Gazette, you can have several seats. Uh, get your life together and get your facts straight. Okay. <clears throat> It doesn't doesn't end with the El Paso Gazette. Here we go. The El Paso Gazette was one of many to run the voodoo angle. After their story hit newsstands, several local papers also printed the possibility that the murders were connected to voodoo. Oh, bullshit. Um, around the same time, there were rumors that Clementine was the leader of some kind of cult called the Church of Sacrifice which was supposedly led by uh, Reverend King Harris, a Pentecostal revival preacher with a small congregation connected to the Christ-sanctified Holy Church. Police took Harris in for interrogation, but the Reverend had never heard of the Church of Sacrifice and was visibly shaken to think that his sermons could have possibly inspired a series of axe murders. Um, by the way, so I grew up in a uh, Pentecostal church. <laughs> oh, did you? Oh my God, yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I, 
currently am borderline atheist. Uh, and I think that my days in the Pentecostal church might have something to do with it. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think it's uh, also important to uh, define voodoo because these dumb fuck newspapers like the El Paso Gazette didn't know what it was. Oh, and, no, they hear uh, voodoo and they're they, like, oh, voodoo. Ah. Yeah. And so... Um, uh, so let me, I, I, I Googled the definition. Um, I had what in my heart I felt was a definition, but, um, I wanted, but it's always I wanted, good to double I wanted, check. I wanted to double check. So, uh, <laughs> since this is a podcast about people of color and voodoo is a religion practiced by black and brown people all over the world. Um, it has West African roots and guess what? When enslaved people were taken from their homes and brought to the Americas, they brought their religion too. What? What? Get out of here. So <laughs> voodoo is a religion practiced by the African diaspora in places like the Caribbean and the Southern United States, combining elements of Roman Catholic ritual and uh, traditional magical and religious rites and characterized. From the African religions? Yes, yes, from the African religions. You got it. And uh, characterized by sorcery and spirit position, possession. Um, but the essence of voodoo is that um, it is a spiritual folk way and uh, it's passed down from generation to generation via um, oral tradition and the modeling of rituals and routine spiritual practices. Now, what, what is a folk way? Um, folk, okay, so I, uh, folk, I imagine that folk way is kind of like folklore, only oh, folklore okay, okay. is what people talk about and folk way is how people live. Gotcha, I could gotcha. be wrong, but you know Something what? like that. You know what? Email me. If, okay, yeah. Email love. So <laughs> let let us all, know yeah. all about Let us voodoo. know how terrible we are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's voodoo. <laughs> And then, <laughs> on January 23rd, 1912, Marie Warner and her three children were found slain in a two-room house in Crawley, Louisiana. All four had been killed with an axe found in the house. Again, same, same, mo same M.O. Same uh, the children were named Pearl. She was nine years old. Gary, a boy uh, age seven, and Harriet, a girl age five. Mm. Marie had been separated from her husband for about four years, and it was believed that he was living in Beaumont. It was a little before noon when Harriet Crane, Marie's mother, called around at the house but received no answer. She went across the street to ask a neighbor where her daughter was, but the neighbor didn't know. The two went back to the house together and found the back door open, but both were afraid to enter. They must have known something was wrong. And uh, finally, they found a man to help them, and he went into the house and found the remains of the four occupants lying on a bed in the front room. The house in which the family lived was divided into two apartments, one in the front facing the street and the other in the back. There is an entrance both in the front and in the back, and it is believed that the murderer came in through the back, as the back door was found open when the investigation was made. From the evidence, it appears that at least some of the occupants were killed in the back room, and then their bodies were moved to the front room. All four were lying across the bed, face downward, in the front room. 
There was no indication of a struggle, and it is supposed they were killed in their sleep. I hope so. Uh, I hope so, too. A bloodstained axe was found in the room where the dead bodies were discovered. Uh, Sometime after the Warner murders, um, which we just went over, uh, mm-hmm. A Wexford family was murdered, um, six in total, including an infant. But I could not find any information on this this family. It was mentioned in an, a, a newspaper article. Mm-hmm. They mentioned the infant. They mentioned the Wexford, Wexford family. But I couldn't find any other information, so I apologize. But it happened sometime after uh, the Warner murders. Okay. And then it, on February 19th, 1912, uh, Beaumont, Louisiana, the Dove family was murdered. They were uh, Hattie Dove, who was the mother, the matriarch of the family. Uh, her son, Ernest Dove, aged about 14 years. Uh, her daughter, Ethel Dove, about 16. And her daughter, Jessie Quirk, who was aged about 18 years. Jessie was married but separated from her husband and uh, living with her mother. And her mother was separated from her husband. So uh, they were all living together there. Mm -hmm. And uh, a man who worked nights boarded at the home and presumably was not home when this happened because he was working. Uh, The family was seen stirring in the home on Sunday about 930 I've put 9.30 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> Got all the bases covered. Oh, uh, right? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, about 9.30 in the evening, uh, they were seen uh, doing stuff in their house. Uh, and then shortly before 7 o'clock the next day, um, and I'm not clear if it was 7 o'clock in the morning or 7 o'clock in the evening. I was thinking it was 7 o'clock in the morning. Me too. But I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know for sure. I don't sure. know for sure. But a neighbor came to the house and discovered the bodies. The axe with which the crime was committed was left in the room. Near it was a bloody cloth, which was presumed to have been used to wipe uh, the murderer's hands. Uh, the axe was found to be, this one's kind of weird. The axe was found to be the property of a man who lived about two blocks from the scene of the murder. It had been taken from his yard and another axe was left in its place. That's weird. Yeah, isn't it? Like, what the? Yeah. What? Why don't you just leave just that guy's axe alone, guys? Axe. Yeah. Maybe okay. it wasn't sharp enough. I don't know. I don't know. I, I. I don't know if you're you're like killing people with an axe. I guess nothing makes sense. Absolutely nothing makes sense. I know. You know what? That's that's the answer. That's the answer. Just nothing makes sense. So just do whatever. Whatever. I got a case of the fuckets. (laughs) (laughs) The bodies of Hattie Dove and her three children were left piled almost naked on the bed each one slaughtered by axe blows to the head. It appeared that Hattie had put up a fight and there were signs of a struggle. According to the Beaumont Enterprise, ooh, what a name for a publication. (laughs) Furniture, yes. Uh, Very official. Furniture (laughs) had been overturned and the bed clothes had been torn from the bed while blood was everywhere. 
Up to 3.30 this afternoon, the officers had not been able to find the slightest clue to the murderer or murderers. Um, one thing I did want to mention is uh-huh. if this had happened in 2018, this person would have been done caught. <laughs> I oh, mean, yeah. Leaving the weapon at every scene. Every Come scene. Come on, bro. There was probably DNA Fingerprints. Fingerprints. Yeah. Everything. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, okay, it is believed the crime was committed last night after the family had gone to sleep. The tracks in the backyard led to the belief that more than one person was implicated in the crime, but this is merely a matter of conjecture. The premises were being carefully guarded, and it is stated that the officers will send for a pack of bloodhounds. Black people get scared at the idea of bloodhounds because they... they <laughs> I get scared they, too, man. They hunt you down when you yeah, run away from the plantation yeah, and they, then they... Oh, oh, okay. Oh, I, sorry. I didn't, oh. <laughs> I didn't uh, they're not make very that connection. <laughs> <laughs> I just like, if a dog's chasing me, I'm scared shitless. <laughs> oh, so there's... Okay, so I, this is for the culture. Um, There is... There is this... And I've... I don't have this belief personally. I love dogs. And I think that dogs are dogs. If you raise them nice, dogs will be nice. Yeah. But there is um, a theory that I have heard that um, some dog breeds are racist. Let me let me explain. (laughs) So bloodhounds, because they they chase down slaves back in the day um are so so black people uh i've heard say that bloodhounds are racist and then also um during the civil rights movement german shepherds were used to control black crowds and so there's the idea that so german shepherds german shepherds are also racist so (laughs) anyway i just had to i just had to throw that one out there for the i I had no idea (laughs) But I, uh, but it makes sense. I mean, yeah. You mean yeah? Well, I mean, dogs dogs can be really scary. Dogs can, can be, be yes, really scary. Yes, and you so. and I are both pit bull owners, and yeah. um, I I know I have I have been bitten by uh, pit bulls that I don't own, so I understand the f- the, the fear. fear. And but, pit bulls in particular can be really scary. Like just their their just bark how they is look. scary, yeah, and, and how yeah, they how they look. Mm-hmm. But um, my pit bull is a big fat weenie. Mine too. He's he's scared of squirrels. Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> squirrels. Yeah, I took him camping, and he was just terrified. He was like, "Take me home. <laughs> this this place is nuts. I just, I just want to go home. I just can't. I just can't even." <laughs> Your dog. It was like shivering. the The squirrels were like chittering in the woods, and every time they would chitter, he would shiver. Oh like, my oh my god! god. Oh, oh my god! <laughs> you know what though is well, I mean, you can't you can't live in South Phoenix without having a having a, a, a big dog, yeah. <clears throat> um, because it, it is it, it. He's she's our our family pet, but she's also um, mm-hmm. a deterrent for crime, and she keeps and because they and are scary, it. like just their bark and everything is so scary yeah. plus they but. are really smart dogs i mean yeah. they're 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 from um they're the from a working a working class um breed of dogs so they like to work they like to have a job they yeah. are um they're they're terriers so um the, so so they uh they really do serve a purpose, and I think that that makes the doggies happy when they. And when they're they get very to... sweet. Yes, they are. They indeed. really are. Yes, they are. And they, they, you know, 
my pit bull sleeps in my kids' beds. I mean, she's she's the best. So <clears throat> yeah. Um, but anyway, some so people anyway. think the dogs are racist. So <laughs> interesting. Uh, <laughs> Never heard that before. So uh blah blah blah, metal of conjecture. The premises are being carefully guarded and it is stated the officers will send for a pack of bloodhounds to put a ta- a trail in the hope of running down the murderer. And that was from the uh, the uh, Bo- Beaumont Bo- Enterprise. In, yeah, in my biggest uh, asshole uh, Charleston okay, su- Southern voice. Go. The Beaumont Enterprises. There you uh, go. There we go. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so on March 26, uh, two th- two th- uh, 2012, right? There I go again. March 26, <laughs> 1912, Glidden, Texas, Ellen Monroe, her four children and a lodger, uh, possibly also her lover, given that they shared the same bed. Uh, Lyle, and here we go again with the name, Funankun. I think so. Funankuni. 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 Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lyle. Uh, they were murdered in their beds. According to the Nesbitt Memorial Library Journal, the bodies were found at 7 a.m. by M- Monroe's fifth child, Parthenia, who lived with her grandmother. I like that name, by the way. Parthenia. I've yeah. never heard that one before. I haven't either. That's why I like it. On uh, April 2nd, 1912, Clementine gave a confession to a reporter. Okay, so that's going to be it for this week. Um, we are going to do part two next week. Okay. okay. Um, part two of Clementine so, Barnabas. Yes. Tip. If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so my tip this week, based on this story, is... Keep your windows and doors locked. Yes, amen. Crime does increase in the summertime. To be fair, the victims in this story lived at a time when there was no air conditioning, so windows were often left open. I actually lock everything. I lock the garage door. I lock the side door. I lock the back door. I lock the front door. I double, triple lock them if I can. Me too. We insert. We actually installed a double bolt in, our, in, our, in our front yeah. front lock, and we... um. So we keep a dog on the inside. We keep a dog on the outside. Dogs, dogs, uh, dogs. We yeah. have, we lock everything. And I, um, <laughs> since I've gotten into true crime, I've started keeping a set of keys by my bed. So if somebody does break in, I am, I mean, plan is to hit the panic button. So, oh, oh so, good idea. Like maybe scare them away. I don't know. Give us, yeah, give I us, have, I give have us pepper a few spray. Ooh, I have pepper spray. And pepper. I also... Yeah, by my bed. Ooh. Yep. And I also, um, I, this sounds weird, but it makes me feel safer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have this really heavy antique typewriter in a box. Like it's kind of like a suitcase, but it's a typewriter. You yeah. Know? Have yeah. you ever seen those? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I just put that in front of my door. You know, why not give them, you know, 
a little something they have to push open that might, might wake me up. Who knows? Oh, that is a good. That is. A good, I lock that my bedroom door too. <laughs> Do you really? Yes, I lock my bedroom door and I put that typewriter case in front of the door. Wow, that is that's that is next level. Okay, that is crazy. That, no, 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 because I have a baseball bat by my bed. I have a mirror in case, so in case like if I hear something, so I can like you can look peek yeah. peek and see see the door. Um, yeah. But I I don't know. I just it just makes I me just feel safer. Feel like, yeah. I don't know if it actually makes me any safer, but it makes me feel safer. So then I can sleep. Exactly. Do you think you would feel safer if you had a gun? No, I don't. Either. I don't want a gun. I don't. Either. Um, I took a self-defense class once and they said, if you do not feel if you are not 100 percent sure that you could shoot somebody, then don't get a gun because if you hesitate at all, then they will take the gun from you and shoot you with it. So, yeah. Yeah, I and I I've shot guns before. I think they're fun, you know, at gun ranges (laughs) where it's completely (laughs) safe, and it's just like you know riding a roller coaster or whatever. It's kind of fun, Mm -hmm. but I don't want one in my home. Yeah, and uh, to be honest with you, so I've struggled with like you know depression and um, stuff like that. So I I think if I had had a gun in my house, I probably would not be here. <laughs> yeah, um, there's that too. There's yeah. that and the fact that you have small children. Uh-huh. You uh-huh. know, that always scares me. Um having guns around when there's small children. You never know. Yeah. I mean, you think you like, oh, they'd never find it, but you would be surprised at the shit that they find. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And it's, just, I mean, I've heard 911 calls of mm-hmm. little kids. I accidentally shot, shot my sister. I've accidentally mm-hmm. shot my brother. And it, it I just will never it's get co- that out so of my It's so heartbreaking. Mind. Yeah. So heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I can't, I can't <sighs> even. Can't even. I can't I even. Can't even. So, um, so that's uh, that sounds like a great tip. I will so, <laughs> make sure that my door. Make sure every everything, everything is, is locked. Locked. Lock every fucking then, thing. <laughs> lock every fucking thing, and then barricade yourself in your bedroom. <laughs> okay, and then we'll all, all be right. safe. Yay! Yes, yay! Well, at least you'll feel safer. <laughs> you got to be able to sleep, right? Yep. Got to so, sleep. So, uh, well, let's tell the people where they can find us. We okay. are, uh, we have a website because it is 2018 and, uh, <laughs> you can reach us at everybody's got a website. Everybody's got a website, fruitloopspod.com. Um, Facebook, we have a group and you can find it at Fruit Loops pod in the group section. Um, and we have a discussion going. So, um, if you have any thoughts, questions, comments about any of the episodes that have uh, happened or any, any um, updates episodes, updates, corrections, corrections or... or perps of color that you want us to reach. Yeah, research, that'd be awesome. That would be awesome. So let us know. Um, and then we are on all the things. Uh, fi- uh, I already said Facebook, but uh, Instagram, Instagram and Twitter at fruitloopspod.com or at fruitloopspod. And then we have an email address where you can send us questions, comments, um, or even a fuck you. I'm just kidding. Don't send those. <laughs> Don't send a fuck you. <laughs> Don't send a fuck you. Keep uh, that to yourself. <laughs> it's fruitlesspod at gmail.com. <laughs> All right. Okay. Look alive, guys. It really is crazy out there. <laughs>
Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. 3 a.m. The comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. Let's go.